From WKYT Podcast, this is Uniquely Kentucky. I'm your host, Amber Philpotts. Hello, podcast listeners. Amber Philpot here with you. Wow, we we are staring Thanksgiving in the face as we drop this episode of Uniquely Kentucky this week. And with that happening, that means that Christmas is right around the corner. So um, as we're getting ready to go into Thanksgiving, I am just super thankful. I hope that you have many blessings out there to be thankful for. I'm thankful for a wonderful family, my friends, and I'm thankful for folks like you out there who have come along this journey with me and listen to Uniquely Kentucky. We're now in season two. This is episode two. And also for all of you that tune in nightly on WKYT, I'm very thankful for each and every one of you. So normally on this podcast, we try and talk with people who are just doing fun and interesting things in and around Kentucky. And I want it to be uplifting and I want it to be something that you walk away from after you listen to it and go, wow, I learned something or I feel better about this. And so as we're getting ready to go into Thanksgiving, um, this podcast is pretty special because It's a serious tone, um, but there's also a lot of laughter and a little bit of humor in it as well. But I had the opportunity to sit down with someone that many of you probably remember if you are from Kentucky. And what she is doing and what she has been doing, uh, her work in and around addiction and advocating for those that are trying to get sober has really made its mark. And so I was pleased to be able to get just a little bit of her time while she was back home in her home state of Kentucky. So in 2006, many of us here in Kentucky looked on as a small town girl walked away with a crown and title of Miss USA. But eight months later, Tara Connor, a Russell Springs native, would make headlines again, this time for underage drinking and cocaine use. Now, Connor could have lost her title, but she didn't. And instead, she was forced into rehab. Connor was recently back here in Lexington celebrating nearly 13 years of sobriety. And I had the chance to sit down with Connor at the Hope Center. It's a recovery center here in Lexington for both men and women. And in our conversation, she was very candid about her time using, brutally honest about her journey to beat addiction, and very hopeful that her story will give others a sense of hope, something that she openly admits she didn't always have. Welcome back to Kentucky, first of all. This is home originally. Mm -hmm. What's it like when you get back here? (sighs) It's like coming back home, you know, and I think that there's always different feelings about coming back home, but I had a lot of my suffering when I lived Mm -hmm. at home, Um, but then, you know, I used to think that, oh, it was the town that was the problem, or it was where I grew up that was the problem, or my family. And the more I got into my recovery, I was like, oh, no, 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 you're the problem, right? And so now, because I'm in a place where I can understand my disease and the inner workings of my mind and stuff, when I come home, it just feels like home. You know, it's a, it's a place that I love, and Kentucky is so beautiful, and I hate that we have such a strong opioid problem and addiction problem here. So anytime I get the opportunity to help in any way that I can, I love it because it's kind of my life mission at this point. What's life like these days for Tara Connor? It's fine. Um, what am I doing? I travel around a lot and I speak and share my story. I just uh, started a new talk show called Real Talk 100, which is a lot of fun. So we feature a lot of different people and focus on the real of it. Like, when did a struggle happen? How did you get through the struggle? 
I feel like a lot of people like to live in their Instagram highlights and uh, a lot of us compare out when we look at social media and stuff like that. So I think it's important for people to tell their story in a way that I've been doing it the past 13 years mm -hmm. almost because it helps people to understand that life happens to all of us and there's a way up and out of almost every situation. So I try to showcase that and let people know that we're all the same. Before we get to the present, let's talk a little bit about the past. Um, take me back to that moment in December of 2006 mm -hmm. when you are sitting there, um, you're about to go in front of the cameras, mm -hmm. and Donald Trump gives you a second chance. And I read that you said, I will always be profoundly grateful that he saved my life. Was that in the USA Today article? It was somewhere in that. But, yeah. But something in that that <laughs> maybe not necessarily that way, but he gave you that second chance. So the way that it happened was a second chance was absolutely given. And I love to tell this story because uh, when I could get articles out there trying to raise awareness about addiction and recovery and stuff like that, people were so attuned to hearing negative things about the president that they wouldn't publish it unless I said something positive. So I've literally had to spit that line for <laughs> years. But the truth is, it's a really funny story. When I went up to his office, they had given me my resignation papers already because their intentions were to fire me. And he said, what am I supposed to do with this? And then I took my last little bit of alcoholic manipulation tool belt out and I said, well, Mr. Trump, I think that it would say far more about the organization and far more about your character if you helped me and I'll turn this around and be the best Miss USA you've ever seen. And he goes, Trump saves Miss USA. I like it. So that's how that happened. But in the grand scheme of things, it saved my life. You know, I cannot deny that every circumstance that happens in our life, even if it's dressed up as a wolf in sheep's clothing, it's for a greater good. So if something needs to change in life in general, we'll be squeezed, right? We'll get really uncomfortable with where we're sitting. And opportunities will arise for us to get out of that space. We just have to go with it, right? So at the time, it didn't feel that way. But now looking back, regardless of the intention of how I got to treatment, I got to treatment. And had that not happened, I don't know that I would be alive today. So in an essence, my life was saved. Did you, was it a 30-day? Yeah, I was in a 30-day treatment okay. center. But, you know, I was still Miss USA, so they needed to get me out. And they wanted me to do a media tour about my experience. Yeah, totally you know, normal. you kind of forget about that. And, and until I hear you say, mm -hmm. you know, because, uh, you know, that's perfectly normal to go on a media tour right after you do that. I mean, what? right, and, and that's when I really noticed the stigma was when people would be like, do you think you tarnished the crown? And I'm like, is that even a real question? <laughs> of course I did, but did I? Like, you're making addiction mm -hmm. look like it's a bad thing. And my life inevitably changed just by being sober and learning some tools. I was like, whoa, I feel better, mm -hmm. and other people can too. This is great. And then I'm being shamed on national television by professional journalists that yeah. should know better, but yeah. they just didn't. I mean, they were just a victim of the, the stigma that we all suffered from. Sure. So um, that's why I became an advocate, and that's why I became so vocal. I was going to say, you probably found your voice before yeah. you didn't know if you could speak up, and yeah. I would think. And part of me was just like, wow, there's such a misconception. And 
we do this to each other. Like we all shame ourselves so much. We're so mean to each other. Are we talking to her about alcohol, drugs, yeah. cocaine? Yeah, I mean, as far as my use And was with, it an everyday? Yeah, I yeah. mean, you know, when I got sober, I basically said I was an alcoholic because everyone was telling me to say that I was an alcoholic. You know, when you go to treatment and someone doesn't identify right away, they're just like, well, they're not getting it. Well, how did you end up here? You know, and I think that um, it took me a long time to truly understand what being an alcoholic or an addict was. Mm -hmm. And it took some time sober to understand that my mind uh, and my emotions are different than my fellows. And alcohol and drugs were my solution for a really long time. But when I took that away, I saw how other things became my solution, whether it was like working out or food or men or, you know, women, <laughs> like whatever I could do to try to make me feel whole on the inside. So um, I definitely, when I drank, I drank alcoholically. When I did drugs, I did it addictively. And I definitely qualify. Um, but I, I think it takes us a while to really strip away the excuses and our old ideas to understand what actually made us an addict or an alcoholic, and that takes time sometimes. Sure. You've been very open about yeah. sort of the progression, mm -hmm. and I know in your, your TED Talk you talk very openly about being that 14-year-old girl that yeah. was desperate to fit in, yeah. and that where that path then took you. Right. Um, what would you go back now and say to that 14-year-old girl? Oh, I would tell her just to hold on. Just hold on because when you're a kid and you are in any given circumstance, that is your circumstance and it is controlled until you're 18. And then you get to make the decision on what happens to you and what doesn't. But, you know, there are so many kids out there that are living in homes that are alcoholic homes, abusive homes, or even homes that are fine. But we all have our things, like we all feel pain and it's all relative. So I would just tell them just you're worthy of so much more. If you feel like you're less than, please know that you are absolutely perfect and unique and there's only one of you. So just hang on. Hang on until you can take a little more control of your life and try to stay away from the bad stuff because it may feel good now, but it's going to really hurt later. There are a lot of kids that can relate to hearing that from you mm -hmm. and that you say alcohol was sort of that gateway yeah. and that's kind of cliche to say but it's true, it's true. Yeah. what then became sort of your progression after that well I remember when I had my first drink I was 14 and I got hammer smashed and I was on a cheerleading trip mm -hmm. in Gatlinburg Tennessee and I was just trying to fit in with the girls and then I swore like the next day when I had that first hangover why do people do this I'll never do it again but then you know, my reward system and my, and my brain and my chemical makeup was already skewed. So I, you know, within a year was doing morphine pills if someone had it. I was like, well, it's there, I'll try it. You know, like I never said like, oh, I'll never do that. Um, except when it came to like hard stuff like cocaine or heroin, I was like, I'll never do that. I'll never, in my no, that's dirty. And then, you know, down the line, there go I. And I'm like, how did I get here? And so that was another one of those things that kind of secured the idea that, yes, I am a drug addict alcoholic because I do things that I swear I'll never do, even though I've made this divine oath, I'll never do this, and then there I go. And I'm asking myself, how did you get here? And that's the thing about addiction and drug, drug addiction and alcoholism is, like, you take the drink and then the drink takes you. You don't really have a say in the matter. Um, 
and it's cunning and it's weird and it, you just even when you get sober you start making similar mistakes that you did when you were using and you're like wait how did I do that I'm sober now I shouldn't be cheating on my boyfriend I shouldn't be having unprotected sex I swore I would never do that again but I didn't have the power to do better than that so I lived in this cycle in my life of repeating these mistakes and then I was like oh those are the cycles that lead me to drug addiction and alcoholism when it's active right so it's really stripping away all of that, seeing where you lack power in your life, and then try, trying to take direction from someone that can help you because my ideas always lead me in the same place. So even with a great, sober, recovered mind, I still have to work on my recovery every day because life is going to happen, and there's always new layers to uncover. So it's a continual process, but it's beautiful. If my math is correct, it's been about 12 years um, sobriety, probably yeah, coming on I 13, had 12 right? Up on 13, yeah. yeah. Um, what keeps you going? Like, what is, because every day is hard. It's hard for all of us, even if you're yeah. not in that. Well, I always say life always gets lifey. I mean, none of us are <laughs> exempt from life getting lifey. But, um, you know, when I first got sober, I did it because I was trying to prove to everyone that I wasn't the piece of crap they thought I was. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, I became this recovery advocate cause, because people wanted to hear my story because of the way that it all went down. It was a very public scandal. And so here I am being this pillar of recovery and I'm like kind of dying on the inside and I was too afraid to come forward and let anyone know that I don't know what I'm doing and I'm miserable. I'm not using, but, and I didn't want to use, I wanted to die. You know, because I knew that alcohol and drugs wasn't the solution, but why can't I feel better? Like, I can't make me feel better. And that's when I really started to understand the disease of addiction and how it's a disease of a threefold nature. Like, I haven't triggered an allergy or had a craving because I haven't put anything into my body, but I still have that mental obsession and that unmanageability of my emotions. And those are the things that I have to treat on a daily basis so that my brain doesn't convince me I know what's going to fix this, right? So it's been a journey and around eight years sober I brought myself to my knees I was beaten into a state of reasonableness to where I could say like I'm I feel like I'm gonna die sober and I don't know that I can stop it right and so I just asked for help because you know I think we all believe like you're just gonna stop and everything's gonna get better but it's not a linear process it's a it's a there's ups there's downs there's really high highs there's super low lows and creating that recovery foundation and taking the time to get your group get your your you know some people get sponsors some people go to therapy you know finding the right doctor if you have dual diagnosis like there's so many different sides to it but as long as you're willing to take direction and grow then you'll get results and so I started to take direction and my life transformed mm -hmm. you know at eight and a half years I was it took that long for me to be like wow I really need help <laughs> and Recovery has absolutely given me a life beyond my wildest dreams. When you come home, mm -hmm. I mean, and, and I don't know if you get home often enough, but the reality is here, we are in an uphill fight oh, and yeah. battle with yeah. opioid addiction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, before that it was meth. So yeah. what's it like for you and how do you try to be like something that can be a positive change in that? Where do you fit in that? Well, I think that a, a lot of us just don't have a lot of education as, as to how addiction actually manifests and how it turns into the monster that we're trying to battle right now. And, and it's something as simple as kids starting to smoke jewels in high school. I mean, the second that 
you know, when you're when you're between the ages of birth and 25, your brain's going through rapid development. So if a kid is smoking or doing, you know, drinking or like smoking pot or whatever, when you start to mess with that brain chemistry, your reward system that's uh, naturally in your body gets stunted. So you can't feel happy or joyous on your own because you've stunted that part of the growth in your brain. It's all science. And so kids are playing Russian roulette with their lives and addiction starts in adolescence. It's not something that you just pick. Some people pick it up later, but the majority of it is started at 11. Kids are starting as early as 11, 10 now. And so, you know, it, it's sad because it's a big monster that we're trying to battle and it has to be done by so many different sides. Uh, one is breaking the stigma and showing people that it affects all of us. No one's exempt. So I think that it's important for me as being a former Miss USA and someone that was supposed to be a role model to be very honest about, well, yeah, but I wasn't a bad person. I was just sick, right? But it's also, you know, people are either afraid to get help because they're afraid to leave their children behind or they're afraid to send their kids somewhere because what if they find out? And we live in a world today where we're all afraid of looking bad. And so we, we shame ourselves to death and it's killing people. And so I think that people are being criminalized for being addicts, like our judicial system is, you know, well, our criminal justice system, 80% are addicts that are in jail. They don't need to be locked up, they need recovery. They've done stupid things, but it's being done out of an illness, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if a diabetic has messed up on their insulin and they start acting crazy, you go into the hospital and they'll give them whatever they need, like let us help you, you're sick, right? Mm -hmm. But if someone is in the midst of a relapse and they're in their disease, they're turned away. And so the resources aren't there. And that's why I love the Hope Center so much because you can be at any stage of your addiction. You can be at any stage in your life and they'll take you in. You can have mental illness, they'll take you in. Like they're not turned away, right? And they give you that long-term treatment because there's a lot of people who have great insurance policies and their kids are in high school and they can send their kids off but it's only to like for a five-day detox or a 30-day residential treatment but they're not getting what they need in 30 days like I think the success rate is like 1% if you go to a 30-day treatment so I love that there is that place you don't know how many people reach out to me on social media mm -hmm. where do I take my kid where do I go I can't afford treatment I don't know what to do and you know if they don't have a Ferrari insurance policy then they're being turned away or if they're in a specific social economic background our middle class are the ones that are suffering with this the most because if you're homeless you have more resources than you would if you have an insurance policy so there's so many different it's hard mm -hmm. and so that's why I do what I do I just try to make as much noise as I can and let people know that help is out there we can get you to these spaces you just got to be willing enough to let us take you there, right? Like, so I don't know. It's it's an uphill battle, but people really need to start being honest. Recover out loud. That's my biggest thing. Like, you have to recover out loud, even if it's a family member. Let them know they're recovering out loud. Like, you can be brought up and out of a hopeless or a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, and people can get you there. But we need to show that it works. Sure. Yeah. What, what's the biggest misconception you think people have about Tara Connor, and maybe they're still going to put the label of Miss USA, Tara Connor with that after all yeah. these years, still what they think they know about you, but they don't. You know, I'm, 
and do you even care? I don't care. <laughs> That's what <laughs> I thought the for the longest was. time, I was so worried of just trying, because not a lot of people get to experience being dragged through the media mud and having it done on that global of a scale. And, you know, I think that some people, it's really easy to judge someone unless you've known where they've come from, what they've gone through, or whatever. But if you listen to any addict and let them tell you their story from birth to where they are now, there's no way that you can walk away from that without finding some form of compassion or empathy. So I think that uh, a lot of people believed that I just won Miss USA and I moved to New York and blah, I went crazy. But you know, I was a, a survivor of child abuse at three years old. I was a full-blown drug addict at 14 years old. I didn't choose to become a drug addict at 14 year old. Like as a 14 year old, my brain wasn't even fully developed yet. So uh, that idea of you made a choice to do what you did, no I didn't. And no addict wants to live that way. One of the things, and you kind of said it here today, one of those things you told the cameras in 2006 that I plan on walking out of this being the best Miss USA you've ever seen. Do you mm -hmm. think you accomplished that? I think so, yeah, because I challenge anyone to look at some former Miss USAs and see what type of charity work or advocacy that they're actually doing with their life, right? Like, when you're Miss USA, you're given a platform and they say, you're a champion for breast and ovarian cancer awareness, which is amazing and I loved doing that. But now I'm a champion for drug addiction, mental health, uh, breaking the stigma, blah, like wherever I can be useful, my life is completely to be of service and to help other people. And that's my mission. And I'm more of a Miss USA today than I ever was back then. Do you ever let yourself think, I mean, obviously I know they were going to do the testing and they were going to do those things when you were Miss USA, but mm -hmm. let's say they didn't. I mm -hmm. mean, do you ever let yourself think about where you were going and, and had you just completely spiraled out of control? Well, you know, it, or do you think that eventually you would have I don't know. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I think that the way that I got sober was the way that I was supposed to get sober because I needed that. I needed that mass humiliation. I needed that many people saying, like, there's a problem here for me to be in even mildly capable of saying, maybe you're right, right? So, mm -hmm. If it didn't happen the way that it did, I don't know that my pride would have kept me sober for as long as it did. Because for my first probably five years, I stayed sober out of spite. I really did because I, I knew that uh, I identified with people's stories that were alcoholics and addicts, but it wasn't until I really got into the work and I really got into my own experiences sober that helped me understand like, oh, I think differently than my fellows. Like I feel differently from my fellows. And when I really got into recovery around eight and a half years, like doing some significant work, my life completely transformed. And so I think that, you know, recovery is a process. It's a, it's a journey. There's going to be times where it's going to be great and there's going to be times when it gets hard. But at least now I know that I have the capacity to pull out of it if I do the work. And so I think that, um, I just think that it's really important for people to know that there is a solution and that it does work if you do it, right? I have two last questions. One, I just have to ask you, whatever your answer is, do you have an opinion on Donald Trump? What you see is what you get. Okay. And what do you want the folks here tonight, your time spent here at the Hope Center, what do you want them to walk away with? I want them to walk away a, I want donors to walk away and know that their money is going to an amazing cause and that without them, people would be dying and they're saving lives. 
B, I want the people who that are in recovery to show up to just have a good night hearing a good recovery story where we can all identify with each other and uh, be in that community because it's a community, right? Like we help each other stay sober and we help each other when one's down, we'll pick them up, right? So I'm just excited to be a person amongst persons tonight, you know, treading on this common goal of trying to help as many people as we can by sharing our stories. Great. Where can people find you? You've got all these things going on in your life yeah. and so people want to keep up with you, follow you, see, you know, the show, all this stuff. Yeah. Where do they find it? Um, you, I'm mainly the mostly active on Instagram, so it's at Tara E. Connor because some person stole my name. Um, and then if you want to see any of my interviews or some of my, like my talks, you can go to TaraConnor.com and the new talk show is going to be on a platform called EverTalkTV.com. You can also get it on um, Apple or Roku and yeah. Big thank you to Tara Connor for sitting down with us. That new talk show she's a part of, The Real Talk 100. And as she said, you can find it on EverTalkTV.com, Apple or Roku. But again, thanks to her for just talking out loud, recovering out loud, and helping pull that stigma off of recovery and addiction. So thank you for what she's doing. If you are someone out there that is struggling or you know someone who is struggling, please don't hesitate to reach out and ask for help. There are so many wonderful places across the country right here in Kentucky that can help you get on the right track. And the Hope Center here in Lexington is one of those places. It serves men and women, and they take you at any stage. So if you need help, please don't hesitate to reach out and ask. On that note, thank you for listening to this edition of Uniquely Kentucky. Until next time, I'll see you on the news on WKYT.